Paul says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask as we open the word of God, Lord, your spirit inspired and gave to us these things. So Lord, we look now to your Holy Spirit to help us to understand them and to interpret and rightly divide the word of God, and that it would be your spirit and his ministry that would be our teacher, and that you would speak truth and understanding and personal things that each one of us need to hear, and as well what we need to have an ear to hear what your spirit is saying to the church this day, this morning, through this portion of the word of God. So bless this time as we continue to worship you now through the study of your word, and we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, love is something that certainly needs to be declared, but beyond being declared, it's also something that needs to be displayed. And it is the display of love that typically proves many times its sincerity. It assures us that love is real and not just words being spoken in a meaningless way. And perhaps one of the most important times for us to actually display our love is after someone has failed. Maybe after a tremendous shipwreck or some time in their life when they've made some really grievous mistakes, because when people fail, often their sinful behavior and their mistakes that they are engaged in can end up being very disheartening for them. Whether they're indicating it or not initially, whether their heart's kind of still hard, or whether they're at the process where they have realized the flaws and the errors that they have committed, and they're kind of living under the weight of some of those consequences and reality. When people fail and are genuinely sorry, uh, that's a very disheartening experience. A lot of times people end up feeling very worthless, and they struggle with the sense of hopelessness, and they just feel rejected by everyone because of maybe their own foolishness and the frustration they've caused. And sometimes it can even cause people to even be driven to the brink of even having suicidal tendencies from time to time. And the weight of condemnation can be pretty overwhelming. And I think love is one of the greatest antidotes to help alleviate that struggle when a person has failed. And that's really what the point of our text is conveying today, that we should let love triumph over judgment. 
that if you have to choose to be wrong on one side, much better from God's perspective and my mentality is much better when I get to heaven to have God say to me, you were a little too kind there. You were a little too loving there, gracious there. Rather be accused of that of you were way too harsh. You were way too judgmental. You were way too overly critical. I'd much rather be guilty of the former. Well, Paul wanted this church to know his deep love for them. He indicates that in verse four. He says that you may know the love which I so abundantly have for you. And then we'll see in verse five through 11, he also wanted this church to make sure that one of their own members, it seems, who had failed tremendously and caused grief to many there, knew that he was still loved by the rest of his church family, despite what had happened. Paul's going to say in verse eight, I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. Now, remember the backdrop. Paul has just been trying to clarify in the letter at this point, some misunderstanding that happened regarding him not visiting the church there as he originally had planned and indicated he was going to. And this kind of rerouting by the Lord and God kind of changing Paul's itinerary and Paul submitting to that, though he had planned to visit, this was something that caused some in the church who already had a critical heart towards Paul to launch some harsh criticisms. Well, Paul doesn't really care about us. Paul doesn't really you know, know how to keep a plan or to follow through. You can come sit up here, folks. Feel free. Feel free. And, and Paul at this point is trying to clarify some of the things that has kind of come to a place of misunderstanding and, and, and speak to them of how even he saw benefit in the way whereby the Lord had even kind of rerouted him or caused him to be delayed. And that's why as we left off in chapter one, he said in verse 23, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, he said, I came no more to Corinth. And not that we have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So there were some real issues among the church at Corinth, and Paul knew that God was still working through those things in the lives of the people there. And Paul actually saw the benefit to the Lord changing his itinerary and rerouting him. Paul said, actually, I came to realize it was actually to your benefit that to spare you, I didn't come to Corinth yet at this time, but I delayed my visit a little bit longer there to you. See, one of the reasons Paul sensed the Lord changed his travel itinerary was actually to give the church and those who were kind of being problematic people at that time a little bit more time to kind of course correct on their own. And so that Paul didn't have to show up and as directly have to kind of be severe or stern like a father figure in his correction, Paul thought, you know, to allow a little more time for those who were in error there to recognize their wrongdoing, to try and make things right on their own, to have regret and course correct without any sense of pressure from me, that would probably be a much better scenario in the bigger picture, which shows that Paul understood that though part of the role of a spiritual leader is from time to time to exercise the Lord's authority graciously to help bring correction <clears throat> to sin or to wrong living in someone's life. You can tell from Paul's heart here in this point in the letter that he found no pleasure in confronting people for their sin. In fact, it seems Paul hoped that he didn't have to do that any more than necessary. His preference was not to have to do it unless it was absolutely necessary. Because Paul understood a very important reality that is always much better when a Christian is given the opportunity and learns to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit themselves 
than to have someone else have to be an intercessory instrument that God is using to bring awareness of sin or correction into their life. Always a much better scenario for let them to sense the voice of the Spirit speaking to them. You know, when my kids were growing up, oftentimes I purposely tried to allow this to happen. Before I intervened, a lot of times I say, well, what's God saying to you right now? Well, and just to let them sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And to let them learn to recognize, because the reality is, is I couldn't be with them 24-7. And the older they got, the less I could be with them 24-7. And I wanted them to learn how to sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit and hear God's voice correcting them so that they could learn how to make that exchange between them and the Lord. And that they could learn to listen to the voice themselves. And Paul certainly never wanted to control anyone. That's why he said in verse 24, look, we don't have dominion over your faith. We don't want to control your life or rule over you. That's not God's design. He says, we're just fellow workers with God trying to help you out in the process. He says, so that you would learn to stand, he says, in your own faith. In other words, I want you to learn to stand on your own two feet and learn how to listen to the Lord for yourself even in the times of your mistakes. Well, Paul kind of carries this idea onward now, speaking of the benefit of why he did not return yet at this time as he goes into chapter two. He says, but I determined, verse one of chapter two, with, within myself that I would not come again, he says, to you in sorrow. So Paul indicates here that he made a personal decision within not to visit them, he says, again, if that visitation or time spent together was going to end up resulting in just another painful visit, just another sad outcome of spending time together. Now, some believe, as Paul mentions in verse one here, coming again, you see that word coming again, that it's very possible that Paul made a brief visit on the way to Macedonia and that during that time where he just popped in briefly on his way to Macedonia, that maybe there were some pretty tense exchanges that happened between Paul and a few people in the church as he had to deal with some of the sinful activity and some of the arrogant attitudes of people who were there and that Paul had to confront some of this. And as a result of that, having then kind of to leave rather quickly while wounds were still fresh and Paul said, look, I'll be back. I need to continue with my trip. And when I come back, I'm going to spend a longer period of time and we'll finish working these things out together. And we'll finish kind of navigating through this process a little bit more in depth. Yet Paul, as we've talked about, then got rerouted. And he didn't get back to further work through these things at this point yet. Whatever the case, you can tell Paul was trying to avoid as much as possible that his next visit with the Corinthians would not be a very painful, unpleasant time where people's Hearts are broken and issues are being dealt with because Paul said, look, I don't want to come again and our interaction just produce more grief and sorrow again like last time. You know, Paul, like anyone else, understood who enjoys tense and awkward meetings, who enjoys having to have conversations and interactions where it just feels like it's a battle and people are hurt and upset and wounded and there's tension and heartache. And it's kind of just like a battlefield the whole time you're spending time with someone. Nobody enjoys that. And Paul says, I don't want that for you. I don't want there to be more grief for you. I don't want more grief. So he determined, it seems, through prayer and consideration, you know, I think I'm going to wait just a little bit longer and maybe let the dust settle a little bit before I come back. 
and re-engage with you once again. You know, this reminds me of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 3, where Paul says, I'm going to delay and come at a different time. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes 3, because there it says that there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And there it even says, there is a time to break down, and there's a time to build up. There's a time of war, and then there's a time of peace. It also says there's a time to what? Speak, and there's a time to be silent. There's a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing and that they have their set times and purposes and it's wisdom to realize what's the right season is this the moment when i should should say something and speak up or is this the moment where i should just be quiet and maybe not say anything and that would actually be more wisdom or just let god speak instead of me speak is this a situation where i should embrace it and sometimes we have to to do that you know you can't be afraid to embrace god's saying well you need to embrace this then there's other times where the bible says it's the right season to refrain from embracing in other words keep your hands off don't get involved in that. Just refrain. Don't even engage. And there's wisdom. And Paul said, look, I, I want you to realize I didn't want to come again and it be just more sorrow. He goes on verse two, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who can make me glad? But the one who made me sorrowful, that is the one who made him sorrowful, went through change and then was able to make him glad because of their heart change. Verse three says, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul here seems to be expressing that he preferred, as I said, not to stir up more unnecessary tension and conflict and their interactions between these things. In verse two, he indicates that he was purposely trying to avoid another battle, another conflict that was gonna just cause more sorrow again. He says, look, if that happens again, where is the joy, he says, or that is, where's the enjoyment of spending time together? That's not going to be enjoyable. That's just going to be a miserable visit once again as we spend time. He said, I would much rather the joy of seeing someone who once caused me sorrow because of wrong behavior, having had time to have a change of heart and to regret it and to repent and to course correct and make things right so that then when I come back and see you, I can celebrate and we can have joy and enjoyment. Hey, praise the Lord. Things are different now. Change has come. You've turned the right course. You're headed in the right direction. And Paul said that that would be a much more preferable experience. I would enjoy that as you would much more. You know, there's something wonderful, is there not? When after issues happen between people, where after issues are happening, you're able to forgive and reconcile. And if someone has a heart change, you're able to experience the joy of being able to get to the other side of that challenge and really be able to move beyond it. And that's what Paul desired. And that's why he's saying here in verse three, it's for this reason that I wrote to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow again. One translation renders this, this is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the ones who ought to or could give me joy. Now, it appears from verse 3, as well as Paul mentions in verse 4, that likely, though it did not become a part of New Testament scripture, a canonized scripture that we're given from the Holy Spirit, that Paul may have written another letter to the Corinthians between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that did not become canonized as New Testament scripture. Certainly, there were times where Paul wrote other correspondences and not every correspondence, postcard, letter, or thing that Paul sent ultimately was kept and given to us as spirit-inspired scripture. And Paul mentions here in verse three, as well as he mentions in verse four, having wrote 
to them already. The idea is past tense. And many believe that what perhaps Paul did was realizing that personal visit at the time would be a little bit too intense at this point, right? Because everyone's wounds are kind of fresh. People are still a little bit tense over what happened last time. And maybe Paul realized, you know, a personal visit may be a little too much at this point. So maybe wisdom would have me refrain. And maybe what I ought to do at this point is perhaps resort to just writing a letter to them. And I can clearly convey my heart And it won't be a dialogue where there's interruptions and they're pushing back or I won't get caught up in emotion and then maybe say things that I don't really want to say or maybe I go beyond it. And Paul's thinking, if I just write a patient, clear letter to them, I can express my heart, I can speak the truth, and maybe that will help them to respond properly either at the moment of the letter or in dialogue or follow-up afterwards. Now, if this is the case and Paul did write a letter that we don't have between the two and that's what he's referring to here – I want to just say there's some real wisdom in what Paul may have done there in that process. Because Paul reminds us in such a thing that whenever we're dealing with people in error, and sometimes that needs to happen, or whenever we're dealing with relational tension or challenges and trying to work through that, not rushing in like a bull in the china shop is really a wise thing sometimes. Because that's where we make a mistake a lot of times is rather than patiently, prayerfully consider, okay, I need to address this, but what would be the right process to address this? It's not just doing the right thing, it's going about it the right way, right? The Bible says, speak the truth, but the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And so there's wisdom and not always just, well, this needs to be addressed. And we just rush in like a bull in the china shop and things are broken and there's a mess. And and we just cause gasoline to be thrown on a fire and then nothing productive comes out of it. And sometimes there's great wisdom say, you know, maybe there's a step in between this step and I should be sensitive to that. And maybe for Paul in his situation was, look, let me just write a succinct, clear letter, convey my heart so I don't say something I shouldn't say. I can think through the letter and that they don't end up just going back and forth and they can read it and process it. And then maybe afterwards we can meet together and dialogue a little further. Now, in a letter that Paul wrote to them, it seems very likely that he was probably pretty severe in his tone because this seems to be what Paul was concerned about. And it grieved his heart to have to do this. But he says, I wrote this letter, he says there, verse three, lest when I come again, I would have sorrow again because error is still happening rather than joy that there's been change and transition in your life. Now, Paul would much rather be able to be joyful and that's what would make him glad. He's saying, look, certainly I hope you know, he says, verse three, I hope you know that what would make me really joyful is the joy of you all. In other words, Paul's saying, what would make me joyful is when I see you happily enjoying having made right decisions and got things in a right way in your life. You know, John says in his letter, I have no greater joy than when my children walk in truth. And this seems to be the idea. Paul's saying, look, nothing would make me happier to enjoy seeing you and you telling me the testimony of, you know, I've made some changes. Great. And he says, and we could celebrate that. That would be something we could be happy about. Now, Paul seems to want to make sure here for clarity's sake, no more miscommunicating, that they don't misinterpret how stern he was in this letter where he seems to have spoke some pretty direct things about their sin. That's why he says in verse four, for out of much affliction, it hurt me, he says, and anguish of heart, I wrote these things to you. With many tears, his heart was broken, 
Not that you should be grieved. I wasn't trying to grieve you more, but that you might know, he says, the love which I have so abundantly for you all. So Paul, you could tell in verse four, is trying to clarify, look, please don't misinterpret what I intended when I wrote that very stern and direct letter to you. I don't want you to think that because of my brief visit when I had to address some things and then depart and some wounds were left still being nursed, I don't want you to think when I wrote that stern little follow-up letter before I've been able to get back to wrongly think that I'm angry with you, that I'm bitter at you, or that I don't love you anymore. I've kind of just written you off and I want nothing to do with you because, see, we all know this. That is what the lying voice of the devil wants people to think when problems happen in relationships. The lying voice of the devil wants to cause people to think things that aren't true, to make confrontation more than what it needs to be and get people to misinterpret the heart of one another and then harden their hearts and relationships are wounded and fractured and sometimes severed way more than what they really needed to be as the result of something that's transpired. So Paul clarifies here in verse four, look, he says, I want you to understand my heart was broken that I had to even write these things to you. I mean, he uses very picturesque language. He says it was in affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Paul's saying, look, I'm not angry. He says, it broke my heart to have to address this. And even as a father, any good father anyway, never enjoys disciplining or punishing their children, right? I mean, we all make that statement, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Now, when you're a kid, you're going, doesn't seem like it. Seems like it's hurting me a lot more. But any good father understands that. And they don't find pleasure or enjoyment disciplining or correcting their kids, but sometimes you must. That's a part of a fatherly, loving, and proper thing to do. Well, in the same way, Paul's saying here, look, as a spiritual leader who loves people, I don't find pleasure in the times when I have to actually rebuke people for sin. When I have to confront error in the way that someone's living, he's saying, this is heartbreaking. But yet, Sometimes being stern is what helps break someone's defiant, stubborn, rebellious spirit. And Paul says, but when I do it, it's, it's actually something that breaks my heart that I have to do such thing. And he even clarifies in verse four here that his heart was not to hassle them. Do you see what he says in verse four? He says, I didn't write these things so that you should be grieved. Paul's saying, well, I wasn't trying to give you a hard time. I wasn't trying to give more grievance and headache to you. And again, a lot of times that's how it's interpreted, right? I don't know how many times through the course of raising my daughters through adulthood, where especially as they got older and they could understand more, we talked through things. I said, look, I'm not trying to make your life miserable. I'm really not. Sincerely, I promise you, I am not trying to make your life miserable. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do by loving you, guiding you, correcting you, and at times challenging you is to protect you from becoming miserable. Because if I let you stay on that path, or I let that character trait continue to manifest itself, or I let you continue to go in a wrong direction, how is that loving you? What I'm going to do is help you have more grief in your life. Because you're going to have regrets and wounds and mistakes and miserable circumstances. Because Paul knew living outside of God's will always leads to what? More sorrow more hurt, bigger problems, and more grief in your life. So he's trying to actually spare them from misery and regret. And Paul's main goal, he says in verse four, in doing all of this, really, he says, I just want you to understand that you might know, he says, the love which I have so abundantly 
for you. In other words, he wished they would ultimately recognize that even the things that he was having to participate in actually was because of how abundantly he did love them and not to be misinterpreted in the other way. See, instead of just letting the Corinthians who were doing what was wrong self-destruct on a path that wasn't right and just stand back and watch them self-destruct, Paul, because he loved them, was willing to engage in a messy situation. And he was actually willing to do the awkward thing, which was engage in their messy situation and to engage them in such a way out of love that he was willing to embrace the awkward process to address or turn them away from their error. See, the Bible says very clearly that when someone loves us, they actually will be willing to confront us. That's what the Bible teaches. You can tell when someone truly loves you because they'll actually get involved in your life. They'll actually seek to help you if they see you going in a direction that's not helpful or that's going to be hurtful to you or self-destructive, even if it's hard when error has to be addressed. Look, who in the world likes entering into the ring with somebody? Nobody enjoys that, right? But it's because you love somebody on occasion that you're willing to do that. The Bible says to us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. How do you know who your true friends are? Because they're the ones when they see you doing things that are damaging to your life or could be potentially dangerous, they love you enough to get awkward. They care about you enough. Look, even if you're going to get mad at me, that's okay. Even if you're going to get upset with me, I'll take it. Even if you're going to get angry with me, that they love you enough to actually say something and even wound you on a surface level if that's actually what that friendship can do to spare you because then when you walk away, you say, you know, man, I've been friends with him for a long time or man, they, I know that they love me and man, that made me mad that they said that to me or really hurt me or wounded my pride. But you know, because of who I know they are, maybe I should listen to that. See, the Bible says that when we love one another, we're actually willing to do that. Confrontation over errors, an indication that someone actually cares about us And so, look, let me say this morning, if someone addresses at times error in your life, don't misinterpret that. Realize they love you. In fact, they probably love you more than the people who don't care and just ignore you when you're going down a wrong path. They love you enough to address it. And note, Paul wanted to make sure that they realized the abundance of his love for them. So he says, I'm actually doing this so that you would hear and understand the display of my love for you. And he purposely wanted them to see the display of his love. He says, look, everything I'm doing, I hope it will convey to you the love that I have for you. And I just want to say, look, don't overlook, as Paul's saying, look, I want you to know how abundantly I love you. Don't overlook that in your relationships. Parenting, right? Yes, you need to correct your kids. Sometimes you need to sternly correct your kids. But make sure you don't forget afterwards to reaffirm to them how much you love them. That after the tense moment that you don't have the tender moment. Because if all you do is police them, you're just going to put them on the run. And there's a, there's a balance in that process. And we need to correct and we need to guide and we need to hold boundaries. But we also need to reaffirm, look, 
I, I want to display to you and reaffirm to you that I love you. Or after I have to correct you or punish you, that I'm, I'm not going to treat you differently like you have a scarlet letter. I'm going to keep loving you. And yes, yes, there's a consequence, and you're going to have to experience the consequence. But I love you, and that you reaffirm that is very, very important. Well, Paul, even as he sought to demonstrate this for them, he wanted to address now how the church should follow his example and do the same thing with someone in their own congregation who had failed and it seems had changed and repented and wanted to be welcomed back and that they were having a hard time welcoming back this brother who had failed and done some bad things in their midst. Look at me at verse five. Paul says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me only, but all of you to some extent. What he did there caused some grief among the congregation. He says, but not to be noticed too severe, to go too far in severity. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is, watch the language, verse 6, sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up, drowned with too much sorrow. Therefore, verse 8 I urge you, even as I did, he says, to reaffirm your love to him. So Paul here in verses 5 through 8 is advising them how to show proper mercy and love to a failed brother, to someone who has made some mistakes in the past. They've clearly endured punishment for it. It seems even some disciplinary action from the church because it was such a severe and gross offense. But he's now turned away from his sin He's living right with the Lord, and he's seeking forgiveness and restoration back into the fellowship. Now, it does not tell us the exact situation here, so it could be any situation that's not even described for us in the Scripture, but it is very likely, and for example's sake, we're going to take this route, that Paul is addressing, we might say, some follow-up instructions of a situation that was clearly addressed in the first letter. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addressed a particular situation. And here, if you look with me in verse five, he addresses a man, he says. So this was a man, a particular individual. He says, who had caused grief. Someone in the church who had caused grief and sorrow to all of them, he says, to some extent, he's caused grief to all of you in the church. Verse six, he says, and this individual, he says, they were punished by the majority, that is collectively the majority of the church had participated in bringing some disciplinary action against him because of the grossness of his sin. Now, if you remember, let me just refresh your memory if you were here, but if not for sake of awareness, 1 Corinthians 5 describes how there was a man in the church in Corinth who was professing to be a Christian. He was professing, I am a Christian, I am a believer living among the congregation. But yet, though he's professing to be a believer and attending regularly, he was openly living in sexual immorality. In fact, even grosser than that, he actually was living and sleeping together with his own father's wife, his stepmother. And he was doing this very flagrantly. It wasn't as if he was trying to hide it. He was openly displaying the relationship, acting as if it was no big deal, continuing to worship and interact. He wasn't just struggling with sin. He was defiantly engaging in gross sin and violation to scripture, no doubt in violation to the you know, council of spiritual leaders who were saying, well, you can't do this, man. This is wrong. You need to, and, and yet he just was continuing in the process and was very self-willed. And the problem Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 5 is nobody in the church was addressing it. Remember he said that? He's saying, you are so proud there in Corinth. This brother is doing this and you're basically just 
being proud of how tolerant you are of his sinful behavior. Oh, we're the tolerant church. And he says, and here you are rejoicing that you're just so tolerant and welcoming. And, and Paul's saying, look, this isn't just somebody from the world that's visiting one time who just came out of the world, doesn't even know Jesus, and they're struggling with sin. That's a whole different thing. This is somebody professing to be a Christian and coming week after week and blatantly disregarding scripture and in a rebellious manner, living in a gross way, defiling the congregation. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 told them in this unique situation, they needed to bring some disciplinary action that they actually needed in this situation to exercise church discipline and to put this brother out of the church. Paul says, turn him over to the domain of the world, take him out from under the covering and the blessing of the church and say, look, if you want to keep living that way, that's your choice. You have a free will, but you need to go out there in the world and live like that. If you want to run with the wolves, you can't be here among the children, God's children. And when you're done with that, hopefully you'll, you'll come back and, and come to your senses. Now, Paul told them to do this that this disciplinary action might awaken him to his sin and the severity of what they did would cause him to be so humbled and so brokenhearted that he would recognize what am I doing? And that as he went out into the world, out from under God's covering, he would be broken, he would become repentant and he would want to change and receive forgiveness and come back and experience restoration. And apparently the majority had obeyed Paul's instructions. Paul says the majority were involved. They had obeyed Paul's instructions. They had did this with this man. And guess what? It worked. Imagine that, following God's word, and it works. At times, doing what's even hard that the scripture tells us to do and putting aside feelings and thoughts and worldly perspectives and doing what the word of God says and trusting that God knows what he's doing with people and it worked. Apparently, this man came to his senses like the prodigal. He repented of his sin. He was truly broken. He made things right. He turned back to God. And now he was seeking to be forgiven and reunited back with the congregation and to be with the church family. But the problem now was what's going on. Paul's addressing it here. Now they were withholding forgiveness. Now they had done such a great job being stern with him they weren't forgiving or restoring him. And this fallen brother who had tried to make things right and is coming back and trying to make things right further is now being given the stiff arm. The idea of what happened is the pendulum swung the other way, way too far to another extreme. At first, they wouldn't deal with the sin. Now Paul's saying, you are being way overboard. And, and now you're being way too severe. He says, way too stern in what you're doing. In verse six, he says, look, or verse five, he says, not to be too severe. He says, the punishment is sufficient, verse six, he says, for such a man. In other words, look, the punishment that, that was exercised, it served God's intended purpose. It broke his spirit, man. The guy's repentant. He feels sorry. He endured the consequences. Paul's saying the pain, the humiliation he went through, it was sufficient medicine to deal with what he had done wrong he sufficiently has been cured of that and your firm, stern treatment served its purpose. And it was not necessary, Paul saying, to keep punishing him perpetually forever to be way more severe than what is necessary. You know, it is a very unfortunate thing when a person fails greatly and then they go through the humiliation and the pain and the consequences. And then, as happens sometimes, they do genuinely repent. 
And they come to their senses and they're regretful for what they've done. And, and they humble themselves and they try and make things right. And to their best ability in the midst of their humiliation, they try and seek the Lord. And try and get back on a right track. And, 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 and they try and turn back to the Lord and to the Lord's people. And then for some reason, people want to endlessly make someone be under a life sentence of perpetual punishment. As if somehow... They need to continue on with the severity and keep the intensity up. And it's almost as if they need to suffer and pay for their past mistakes for the rest of their life. And it's almost like they're under a life sentence of perpetual, continual punishment. And look, let me just say this morning, if perhaps you've made some mistakes in the past and have tried to now make things right and have reconciled some things, and you are unfairly enduring the perpetual punishment process... Let me say to you, despite what others are doing, that is not the heart of the Lord towards you. That is not the heart of the Lord. That is the heart of flawed human beings who are not being sensitive to the heart of the Lord. And let me say on the other side of that, if by chance you are the one who's actually inflicting constant, continuous, undue, unnecessary, severe punishment that is way more than what was sufficient, can I caution you to be careful that you don't start playing God in someone's life? And that you don't go way overboard in the severity to a much too hard degree. Just punishment has a purpose. It has a purpose in parenting. It has a purpose in society with civil and criminal punishment. It has a purpose even in spiritual discipline when we sin and we do what's wrong before the Lord. It has a just purpose. But the reality is in all of those realms, parenting, in civil law, and even in spiritual discipline, sometimes discipline and punishment can be carried to excess because of human feelings and error that begin to mingle and muddy up the waters a little bit. And Paul here is saying to this group of believers, look, this guy is being over severely punished. And he's saying at this point, he says, verse seven, he says, look, on the contrary, you ought to be forgiving and comforting him at this point. Paul says, instead of continuing to punish him at this point, you should be transitioning in the way that you relate to him. Paul's saying, don't keep being cold and resistant and nursing your grudge under the surface and, and, and keep him in perpetual condemnation. Paul says, look, this is the time now you should be exercising forgiveness to this brother. He's changed. He's repentant. He's genuinely sorry and broken. He's trying to make things right. Look, remember the goal of that whole process of church discipline and rebuking that man was what? To get him to come to his senses, to stop sinning, and to get right with the Lord and enter back into relationship with the Lord again. The, the whole goal was restoration. And that's always the biblical goal when a person's sin is confronted. To bring deliverance from the sin, to get them to, to seek restoration, and to put things back into right standing again. Again, the scriptures tell us this. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind, able to teach, and patient with difficult people. Imagine the Bible says that. With difficult people. In humility. Listen, in humility, correcting those who oppose the truth, perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth and then they will come to their senses, escape the trap or snare of the devil for they've been held captive by him to do his will. Again, the Bible says humility, correcting, and perhaps God will change their heart. That's the goal, that God would change their heart and they would come to their senses. James 5 says it this way. 
Brethren, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 6, one says, if someone's overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And he says, being careful, lest you yourself are also tempted. Isn't that interesting? When you're dealing with someone who's done wrong, be careful because sometimes you can be tempted to then actually enter into sinful conduct yourself by the way you treat them wrongly or, or maybe you get entangled in what they're – and he says, look, be careful. Those who are spiritual with sensitivity and wisdom should be involved in this process. Look, we need to remember, folks, once confession and repentance has truly happened, forgiveness should never be withheld biblically. Jesus said this in Luke 17, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day, he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Doesn't mean you have to become his best friend again. Doesn't mean you don't keep boundaries and be careful in how you interact with people. I'm not saying that God tells us to cast wisdom aside. But the Bible says that we exercise genuine forgiveness to them. We release them from the infraction. And just as it's important to confront sin, it is also important to forgive and to comfort the sinful person and restore them. Why? Because that's what reflects the heart of God. Because that's what God does. He welcomes people back. He loves, he forgives, he comforts those who have failed. And look, this morning, if you have a hard heart because of something that has happened to you, because of the offense of another person and it hurt you or wounded you or angered you and you're dealing with a hard heart yourself, let me encourage you, ask the Lord to change your heart. Ask the Lord to give you his heart towards that person and towards what's happened that you might not be too severe, but on the contrary, you might forgive them and maybe even comfort them. And look what he says, verse seven, lest perhaps such a one, the, the gentleman, be swallowed up or drowned with too much sorrow. See, the danger is if this was not followed through, that person who had failed in the past might become overwhelmed with condemnation. And they become so overwhelmed that it has a damaging effect on their progress and their own relationship with the Lord, and it can cause them to drown in despair. Look, the devil would rather do nothing else than get a person who made some real mistakes, who's got things right now and heading in the right direction, to basically find ways to say, you know what? You went too far. You are a worthless scumbag. Just forget it. You think you could change? You think people are ever going to love you again? And the devil would love nothing more than to turn that screw in someone's back rather than let them know that there's forgiveness in Jesus and there's opportunity again to make things right. And the last thing we want to do as one of the Lord's people is stumble someone in that progress and process of turning back to the Lord. We want to be careful there. You know, I pray by the grace of God that, you know, we would recognize if we find someone who's failed spiritually and maybe even they've hurt other people, but yet they are genuinely broken and sorry and trying to turn in the right direction and make things right. Look, if they're seeking forgiveness and healing, we want to be the people who encourage that. We want to be ones who affirm that. And I pray as a church that we would be the kind of church that extends forgiveness and comfort to horrific failures. Because, but by the grace of God, there go I and, and there go all of us. You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, comfort the faint-hearted. When people are faint-hearted because of failure, we want to comfort them and encourage them lest they be overwhelmed with grief and condemnation. Paul says, verse 8, 
Therefore, I urge you, he's urging them, reaffirm your love to him. So he gives an urgent plea. Look, he says, reassure him that you still love him. Whatever it takes, find a way to reaffirm and remind him that you greatly care for him. After Peter's failure, what did Jesus do? Jesus reassured him of his love, and then Jesus even restored him back to where he once was. And that's the heart that we are to have. This is such an important thing in these situations, reaching out to those in failure. Are there people that God has brought into your path, or maybe he brings across your path, who have really shipwrecked? And maybe they need someone to be a vessel, a conduit of the love of Jesus, to reaffirm love to them and to comfort them and forgive them and give them a sense of a hope and a future, irregardless of what has happened in their past. Paul says, verse 9, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Paul says, look, when we're obedient, we're to be obedient when it's easy and to be obedient when it's hard. He says, I wrote to you these things to request you to stop being too severe, but instead switch now to forgiveness and love and comfort. And he says, in so doing, look what he says, verse 9, I'm putting you to the test. I'm trying to test your spiritual maturity. To see, he says, verse 9, whether or not you would be obedient, do what's right before God, in, I have this circled in my Bible, all things. All things. Because let's be very candid. What is probably one of the hardest things for us to be obeying the Lord in? Forgiving people. It's not natural. Maybe it is for you. You step on my toe, I want to slit your throat. I'm Italian. It just, it just comes down to me naturally. It's just natural. It is not natural when you've been hurt, offended, angered, wounded to want to forgive people, to release people. To, it's just not natural. It's supernatural. And understand that about forgiveness. Oh, I can't forgive. I can't forgive. I love when I get first from you because I just, you don't know what they did. I just can't forgive them. Say it again. I just can't. Right. Now we're getting somewhere. You can't forgive anyone because forgiveness is supernatural. God is the source of forgiveness. That's the problem. You're trying to forgive someone. But when you go to God who can forgive anyone, and he's been grieved and hurt more than anybody by sin, and you say, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I am willing, if you supernaturally give me the ability to give me a changed heart towards this person, I'm willing to release this. I'm willing to let it go, to let the blood of Christ cover it. And and he says, I'm trying to see if you obey the Lord in all things now. See, because forgiveness isn't really an optional thing, right? It's not conditional. Colossians 3 says that we are to be bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone is a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. The Bible says it's not an optional thing. It's a command. But he says, will we obey the Lord in all things or just the easy things? These are the hard things, really. To obey the Lord in that, though, is just as important as obeying the Lord in anything else. Lord, I can't do it, but if you'll give me the power, Lord, I'm willing to obey you. I'm willing to obey you and do this if you give me the heart and the power to do such within. Paul says, verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I've forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So Paul wants them to be aware that he's in full support of this forgiveness. And Paul says, in fact, the, the difficulties that this man has given me as well, I want you to know I've forgiven him. And Paul mentions, interesting in verse 10, he says, I've forgiven him in the presence of Christ. 
The idea is I had to go into the Lord's presence, Paul's saying, and through prayer say, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. I'm here in your presence, Lord. Please help me. I'm willing to forgive, Lord, but please help me. And I think Paul also indicates by doing this in the presence of Christ, this idea is that he realized everything about his life was happening in the presence of Christ because Jesus was with him. And so Paul realized when I live out my life and how I'm going to relate to this man, I'm going to be in the presence of Christ when I do that. And Paul, in a sense, was recognizing, you know, I don't want to be in the presence of Christ and be treating this man wrong and refusing to forgive him when Jesus is saying, I forgave him, why aren't you? He says, I don't want to do that. So Paul says, I'm in support of this forgiveness. I've done it for your sakes. Follow my example. And look how he concludes verse 11. Lest, this is a warning, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Paul says, I'm instructing you to do what's right in this matter spiritually, lest Satan, again, Satan is a word that speaks of adversary, one who opposes. So Jesus is the adversary of the church. He's the adversary of every one of us as Christians. And he says, lest Satan, our spiritual enemy, work in deceptive ways through this, where he begins to take advantage of us as Christians and exploit our sinful weaknesses. See, in a crafty way, Satan knows how to exploit human flaws. He refers to here Satan's devices. Your translation say Satan's schemes or strategies. See, in the same way in natural warfare, there are different devices that you can use to attack an enemy, different devices to use to launch an attack or to destroy or to harm. Satan has different devices that he uses, different schemes and strategies. And in a crafty way, he seeks as a master deceiver to manipulate and work his different schemes and devices. And think about this. What are some of the ways Satan seeks to take advantage of or to exploit human weakness to attack us with his schemes? Well, just here in our description alone, I can tell you a few. The first of all is to get people to sin. That's how he took advantage of this man. He got him to live in a sinful way At one point in his time, when he claimed to be a part of the church, he got him to live in a very grossly sinful way. That's one of the ways Satan tries to take advantage of people, to get Christians to think, oh, I can be a Christian. I know the blood of Jesus, but yet I get an exception because I have an issue. And we trample the blood of Christ underfoot. And we act like the power of the Holy Spirit is not real. And we believe a deception that we can live in continuous sin when Jesus is saying, I can set you free. You're being taken advantage of by the devil. Satan seeks to get Christians to live in continuous sin when they don't have to. He gets the church to tolerate sin. That's another way he takes advantage of us, where someone's living in open sin, and for whatever reason, the church just tolerates it, and nobody will address it, and nobody will reach out to someone, and they just let someone self-destruct instead. He, another way, takes advantage is he gets the church and Christians to then refuse to forgive one another, Right? How many times has Satan taken advantage of God's people in that way? He gets people to refuse to forgive one another and remain divided relationally. And the devil goes, great, a house divided against itself will never stand. And he takes advantage of our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings. And another way he takes advantage of is he gets people who failed, like this man, to be swallowed up with grief and condemnation and to feel horrible and to suffocate in condemnation. That's how the devil tries to take advantage of people to get people who have made mistakes to feel there is no future for them when the Bible says the exact opposite, that Jesus forgives and that there is a hope and a future for us. 
and that Christ can give us a new and a better life. And he causes any believer to just be doubtful and discouraged. And, and Satan works in these ways, and yet there are many others. And Paul says, look, we can't be ignorant of the devil's devices. We have to be cognizant. We have an enemy who tries to exploit and take advantage of our feelings, of our thoughts, of our viewpoints. And we have to recognize, you know what? I must live by the truth of the word of God. And I must listen to the spirit of truth within me, not my human spirit, and do what is right, lest Satan take advantage of me or take advantage of us. When instead we could be walking in the victory of the Lord and experiencing God's best. Let's stand together.